and welcome to Got the Runs, the podcast with all of the sexual chemistry of a loveless Iranian marriage (laughs) made for convenience in order to receive a visa to a European country. Uh, Welcome to the show, everyone. It is the beginning of a new miniseries. David, how excited are you today? So excited. (laughs) I can barely contain myself. Uh, Reading the credits page as we speak. To our podcast or the comic? Well, we don't have a credits page on our podcast. (laughs) Edited by. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of those. Uh, but yes, of course, it is the, as I said, the beginning of a new mini series. We are covering the great Mar- Marget Satrapie. I hope, uh, again, we're, <laughs> we're in over our heads is my initial impressions <laughs> after reading this book. Uh, there's a lot going on. I had to have a few Wikipedia tabs open, figuring out the political climate in Iran in the... <laughs> 1980s uh i you haven't you haven't like well no okay well i'll, I'll we'll discuss this in a moment <laughs> introduce our guest for a second i thought you were gonna ask if i had seen argo um <laughs> <laughs> we do have a guest today uh joining us for the first time he is a, a dear friend he is a uh what 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 what, <laughs> what do you want your credits to be future oh. future lawyer <laughs> Is that going to endear you to people? Uh, it seems like a jinx. Um, I R.I.P. Yeah. Robert Durst, by the way. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Did you know he died? Yeah. I also listened to the Hollywood Handbook episode for the <laughs> no bit for him. Um, yeah, I don't know. Former roommate. Yeah, that's a friend. Uh, mentioned in the episode zero as the person who explains the nhl to you and has the nba (laughs) explained to by you one of uh yes so very mentioned uh mentioned in episode the first ex machina episode i believe as well as uh one of the potential listening lawyers (laughs) not to be confused with the lincoln lawyer of course sure uh and you know relate you might ask why did you have this person on <laughs> this episode rather than maybe someone else who could provide more uh, personal context to which i say we didn't think about that enough <laughs> <laughs> but he's here uh you know he i think the well would you like to share the the personal connection you have to this book because today we're covering Marjane Satrapi's debut uh, graphic novel. She doesn't like the word graphic novel. Did you see this on? Uh, oh, I on saw Wikipedia, that she, David. Yeah, I I did see that. <laughs> I I will read it verbatim here. Let me just pull up the uh, the exact quote here. Uh, da, da, da. She said she prefers the term comic books to graphic novels, and says people are so afraid to say the word comic. It makes you think of a grown man with pimples, a ponytail, and a big belly. Change it to graphic novel, and that disappears. No, it's all comics. So my question for you, David, is how do you feel about that personal attack on you? Well, as you can see, I've gotten a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I have I have managed to dodge it. I'm back in the graphic novel crowd. <laughs> uh, yes, but of, co- of course we are. We are talking about Persepolis today, and uh, we will, are welcoming to the show the great Eric Stiller. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. It's uh, it's wonderful to be here. One of my favorite things for years has been listening to the two of you 
talk about whatever and uh, <laughs> definitely made my job mowing lawns this summer uh, a little bit easier. Wow. Um, Go ahead and speak right into that microphone. <laughs> okay. Good to know. I, so my personal connection to this book is that when my wife and I were uh, were moving away, uh, Chris, you and I got together for breakfast uh, and uh, you gave us some gifts. Uh, you gave uh, me the book, The Woman Who Smashed Codes, um, and you gave my wife Persepolis and uh, she greatly enjoyed it. And then I read it and greatly enjoyed it and uh, have no other connections to this book or Iran. <laughs> Uh, but in spite of that potential folly, we will press on bravely <laughs> into uh, into this new era of the podcast. Uh, I, you know, usually we would begin a miniseries on a new creator by giving some, you know, some background biographical information, i.e., reading the Wikipedia page. Uh, but we don't really need to here because Persepolis is <laughs> just a, a graphic memoir of her her early years, basically. More or less leading up to when she, you know, not when she started writing this, maybe, but more or less, right? Up to uh, when she. It's, it's so she, it ends, I think, in 93. Is that right? With her return or her, she goes back to France after having come back to Iran from. So she, so she was born and raised in Iran, went to school in austria when she was 14 came back when she was 19 and then left again when she was like 23 or 24 um to go and live in france permanently so which is where the book ends um and that was 93 and then persepolis was published in 2000 so in between she went she went to art school again in france um and then she was trying to get published as like an illustrator of children's books and having no success. And then she joined this like association of like graphic storytellers basically. And they were like, have you heard of this little book called Mouse? And she was like, huh? <laughs> um, and, uh, and that was when she was like, oh, I don't have to be like an illustrator of children's stories. I can like tell whatever stories I want and illustrate them, which is when she started working on Persepolis. Uh, so that, yeah, it, it was probably a couple of years uh, after going back to France that she started working on Persepolis. And then it was released in 2000 to immediate acclaim. Yeah, uh, released in four parts, which I, I found strange. I, I can't imagine reading like the first, you know, because it's it's more commonly divided. It's either divided into two books or it's just one longer trade. It's what, probably about like 350 pages. But I can't imagine reading like the first half of the first book and being like, yes, I'm satisfied that this is <laughs> narratively, this is a narratively complete work. And it you know, not to jump very far ahead, but the ending to me seems kind of abrupt as well, right? Yes, I I agree for sure. It is it is quite abrupt. I will say so the um the two or the four I guess break points were I don't remember where it ends, but the break <laughs> in three and four is um like book three ends when she decides to go back from right. Austria, which makes sense to me. Uh, like that's, that's a natural transition point. I think the first book ends after uncle Anoush is executed. I want to say. Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe it seems more natural when, 
because it is a very vignette sort of based story like it, it proceeds in a very in like a very linear manner but the, the the little episodes that it depicts you know like they all have their own chapter headings and things like that and so yeah. maybe it feels a little more clear uh when you're when you when you're just reading it in that format but yes like you said definitely very clearly inspired by uh art spiegelman's mouse uh in terms of you know a, a graphic memoir i thought it was interesting that you know that she seems to i don't know if there's a sort of direct analog but you know certainly studied visual art and you know illustration and things like that uh because she is now i think pretty pretty firmly progressed into being a film director and obviously we've talked a lot about the the sort of parallels between comics and film uh, Eric, maybe you would like to weigh in here. You know, it, it's almost like comics serve as this, and and you have watched the Persepolis film, which we are going to cover later on in this mini series. At some point, we're still trying to <laughs> determine the exact order of this mini series, but uh, we'll figure that out. But yes, yeah, sort of. If you have any comment on the the existence of comics as sort of that bridge between the written word and the more visual media yeah uh, one interesting quote i found there's a there's an article uh that she wrote called why i wrote persepolis which is just sort of a like in total it's maybe three columns in a magazine called writing exclamation mark um <laughs> of which there was no record on the internet when i tried to look it up <laughs> but i did find this pdf um and they talk about it it's it came out around 2003 which i want to say is when part three came out roughly i don't know if that sounds right um but she she has a couple of things that relate to what you've been saying first she says when you have the talent to be able to write and draw it seems a shame to choose only one um which sure and then she says to make a film you need sponsors and money and ten thousand people to work with you with a graphic novel all you need is yourself and your editor um which certainly, I mean, I know a lot of the things you guys have covered to this point have had certainly more people working on them alongside the writer than just an editor. There's often a team. Um, but to get to kind of the connection between, yeah, the written word and film and comics as being kind of what comes between the two, um, I think that's definitely true. When Chris, you and I were living together, I took a course in the graphic novel Um which was enormously disappointing <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, because a lot of the analysis uh, and this is part of why I think this is a great show. A lot of the analysis came down to what do you think the shadow across this character's face in the panel on page 67 means? And the answer would invariably be, you know, mixed motives or dark intent or something like that. Um, <laughs> something I really like about comics is that they, draw the imagination out of you um, and kind of stimulate your imagination while still leaving a lot to the imagination uh, in terms of voice, in terms of movement, uh, that sort of thing. Whereas just like the pure written word can rely too much on your imagination. And I think movies often, uh, well, they're, they're not a medium that begs the use of the imagination very much. And so I, I really like comics as kind of the, uh, the in-between there yeah i was uh, thinking about something similar to this this morning while i was 
reading some background things about this as well, because I, I was reading someone's analysis of Persepolis and various different sort of like images and things like that. And they were talking about like the scene where um, Marjan's fam like parents have these two recently released political prisoners come to visit them. And they're like, where's this other like friend of ours? And they're like, oh, like he was executed. And then they're like talking about what he endured in prison prior to his execution. And the analysis was talking about how like, there are no panel borders because like she wants to show that the suffering of torture is unending. Um, and I was, <laughs> I was a little dismissive of that. Not, not dismissive of it because I don't think that's what's going on, but I was like, this is a little like kind of like high school English class <laughs> analysis. Exactly. But, but I was sort of like, it's interesting because like I think I think that often happens in those high school English classes because you're reading something where like every word is is so sort of like imbued with meaning um and film like you you sometimes run into those things but so much like is captured by the camera that is like beyond the control of like what happens uh, or like the the filmmakers whereas in comics it's similar to a novel in that everything that is on the page is there because someone chose to put it on the page but it serves a different function than just a word in a prose novel where it's it it has like a narrative effect it has an emotive effect it has like a tonal effect it, like it achieves many things by virtue of being an image so um i think it, like it would be easy to look at this book and especially because like the art is so impressionistic she loves to use like patterns and symmetry and things like that and like the uh, you know the black and white and especially like she loves to to kind of do like a reverse black and white basically where mm -hmm. things that in a conventional black and white you would expect to be white are black and the things you'd expect to be black are white I think there's a lot that you could say if you really wanted to about all of that stuff but I think that it's 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 serving so many purposes and effects and speaks to her sort of unconventional style as well yeah, I think it makes really strong use, like I think you're sort of alluding to here, like makes very strong use of the possibilities that comics present. And Eric, maybe you can speak a little to uh, what the movie is like, because like in my mind, I was like, you could do a like straightforward live action adaptation of this story and like have it be like a very affecting story. But I think what makes it like, what makes it such a great piece of work is that it both has that affecting story that is obviously being like, you know, drawn from her personal life and has, uh, you know, I, th I think especially the sort of second book uh, and what's entailed in that part and the things that sort of touches on in terms of her feelings about like, basically like growing into adulthood and, you know, feeling devoid of purpose and, <laughs> you know, sinking into a deep existential depression because of that. Uh, are things that we can all relate to uh, but but particularly the the ability that the that the comic format offers her I was like this like it's a good thing <laughs> that the movie is animated because like there are so many like you were saying David impressionistic elements and obviously you know sort of uh, fantastical elements or surrealistic elements uh, that are being drawn from and that sort of helps to enhance the story even further but eric maybe you can uh comment on and you know don't don't blow up our spot because we are doing an episode on the movie but like would say. you would you agree that the 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 animated format is maybe best suited to adapting this story into a film 
A hundred percent. And I think it, like in the movie, I would say they lean into uh, some of the elements that you've both described so far. Uh, some of the imp- impressionistic pieces of it. Uh, the opening credits, I really found that. Uh, one very interesting thing um, is that the entire movie is bookended by sequences in color. Uh, and those are sequences when she is in France, um, which I, I found very interesting. I mean, certainly it's it's a relief that, uh, you know, Satrapi herself is a co-director of the movie because there's no question that that's something that she kind of gave the, the go ahead on. Um, but in some ways, I felt like it almost undercut something I received from reading the book, uh, which is that. How do I say this? I think that the book makes it clear that she loves Iran and uh, is greatly upset by everything that goes on there. And when she is in Vienna, which in the movie is also in black and white, um, she kind of discovers the uh, the fact that it's not some perfect place. She obviously encounters uh, bigotry, etc. cetera. Um, but then the, the choice to make in the movie, the, the couple of minutes on either end in France uh, in color, I thought provided something interesting about sort of the uh, the new life that's there. Uh, and obviously color is something that doesn't appear in the book. Uh, and so I'm, I'm curious about that. I guess I don't, I don't have too much to say on it as much as that it stood out uh, as being the one element that is present in the movie that isn't in the book, other than of course, Sean, De- uh, Sean Penn in the English version. <laughs> Thank goodness. Uh, yeah, that's Fantastic. a, that's a very interesting point because I do feel like there is, there's something to be said about that perspective, especially like, because I think uh, she talks about one of the reasons that she wrote the book is because she didn't feel like there were works that sort of accurately depicted the experience in Iran. And, you know, she, she's starting writing this, you know, before 2001 and presumably things became more difficult after that. But yeah, it's, it's very interesting because I think it is, it's such uh, not, not to, get away from the black and white but it's really working in shades of gray uh because the the politics of iran are incredibly complex and we'll probably dig down on that in a little bit uh and you know because her feelings towards iran are so complex and then you know really the the sequence where she leaves iran which has for a lot of the book been sort of presented as this you know uh escape and you know Mm -hmm. that you know it's the sort of the perspective that maybe a, a Western viewer might put on it, that it's like, well, like you have to get out of Iran, like Iran's terrible. You have to get to a European country. And then she gets to Europe and like, that's like probably the most like depressing and miserable part of the book uh, is while she's there. So I, I think it's interesting that, you know, like, like you said that she doesn't get to Vienna and then suddenly it's all like in color and she's like, I'm finally alive. Uh and I think like that, those mixed attitudes. And also I think it's, I think it speaks really heavily to the immigrant experience that like when she's in Vienna, her problems are maybe like, you know, sh- uh, sh- certainly she feels, and you could argue that they're less like uh, dangerous or, you know, that she's not in fear of being bombed in a given day or anything like that. And she does sort of have this, alienation from her peers because she has this experience going through war but it's also like her crises and the the difficult things that she endures in Vienna are like no less sort of harmful to her than 
what she was experiencing in Iran. Yeah, I was uh, thinking about this a little bit because I read an interview between like her and um, Emma Watson. <laughs> Saw <Which> that. Was, <laughs> which was funny um, because it was it was for some. Oh, it was really funny. I think it ran in Vogue and was part of like this like book club thing that they were doing. Um, and she like goes off relatively at length on like North American women's magazines, which I thought was quite funny. <laughs> um, but it, I, I was interested by it because I think she presents a perspective that um, I, I like kind of feel is not uncommon, at least amongst immigrant women about sort of like Western and like European and North American feminism, where she was talking about how like, yes, she feels that she's a feminist and, and she thinks that like her mother taught her to be a feminist and, and you know, various different things. Um, and then speaks sort of at length about sort of like the individual's role. And even in the context of like the Iranian revolution, talking about how like, you know, it's, it's up to sort of like each person to retain their freedom. And even when you're in a culture that is being repressed, like who gives, who gives an oppressive regime control over your thoughts, like only you can do that. And talks about her experience of seeing like women be some of the loudest voices, like insisting that the veil be worn by all women and things like that. Um, and Emma Thompson, often, or Emma Watson, rather, often just responding by being like, cool, I really agree with like this one thing that you said <laughs> in, in your like five paragraph <laughs> response to me, which I, I just, I find it interesting. I, I wonder, I can't remember when that interview is from. And I wonder if her perspective has changed at all in sort of like the intervening years, because I think it was several years old now at this point. But it's it's interesting to see that like obviously just her her very thought of saying like some of her, sharing some of her ideas about like women and a woman's right to you know free thought and education and things like that would be ostracized in some societies but she when she presents sort of like her own ideas of feminism that might clash with some of the like more like systematic and institutional understandings of feminism it's something that western feminists have to sort of like glide over and, and zero in on sort of like particular pieces of it and, and kind of let the other things slide at least in the context of like a vogue <laughs> interview um so i yeah i think that like it it very much is true that like while she was in europe as much as you know she was in a place where she was allowed to to do and say and uh like think and feel many of the things that she felt she wasn't able to do in iran she was still viewed very much as sort of like an other by her many of her peers um and and that's like without even beginning to get into the whole like experience of being a refugee and the experience of like having grown up in wartime as compared to uh you know these like teenage snot anarchists who <laughs> like have probably never even seen like a fight let alone oh. a war momo oh, <laughs> momo <laughs> <laughs> worst guy uh, but yeah i think i think you're absolutely right I, certainly in terms of like it's hard to hold her up as like at least you know in terms of the sort of corporate maybe like corporate feminism is maybe a nice way to describe it mm -hmm. it's difficult to hold her up in that sort of like morally uncomplicated <laughs> way almost or maybe not morally but certainly politically uncomplicated way because this is such a personal work and because 
uh, like her feelings. Like I said, like it's working in a lot of shades of gray. And, you know, obviously she is going through so many different experiences that are informing these different views that she has. And a big part of that is that she's growing up during the revolution where there was this drastic uh, shift in Iran from, you know, a, a more liberalized society back to a more like conservative religious society. Do you guys ever see those pictures on Reddit? I feel like this is a very That's Reddit exactly thing. what I was about to say <laughs> when you were talking about like, I, it was just before we started recording <laughs> or, or maybe it was right after, but anyways, yeah, that's, this is exactly what I was going to bring up when you were like, I had to have a lot of tabs open about like different like eras of Iranian, like political history. And I was like, what, you haven't seen those pictures of like <laughs> women in the sixties when they were allowed to wear bathing suits. <laughs> yeah. This is like, uh, Oh, is, those. Yeah. <laughs> this is a very, Weekly. a weirdly popular Reddit thing. Where it's like, I'm like, yeah, like the old school pictures, like subreddit or something like that, where it's like, it'll be like, this is what Iran looked like in the 70s. And yeah, like, were like one month before like the Islamic revolution, Iranian yeah, women like, like relaxing at the beach. People were dressed Western style. And I think they you have know, maybe, jeans. <laughs> they certainly do. I think maybe this is a good sort of jumping off point to talk about like the way that the like, politics and history sort of intersect with this book and the ways that like it is like an incredibly politically thorny book because it is like it's a lot to wrap your head around but maybe we'll start with like the just the the idea that it seems like one of the primary like points of difficulty in the sort of uh, like cultural stew of Iran is this idea that like liberal and progressive attitudes in the country are sort of inexorably linked to like the Western world. And then the, but then the Western world is also like very inexorably linked to not, not the downfall of Iran, but certainly like some negative things that occurred in Iran. And like, obviously like the, the political coup that reinstalled the Shah <laughs> and immediately we were getting into uh, it's an under siege two situation where we we're entering dark territory but uh, Eric, do you do you have any thoughts on this sort of the link between American imperialism? <laughs> this is a crazy Excuse question. Me. <laughs> but, like, that, 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 but I think that is what it is, that like there is this link between Western attitudes and then Western politics and that that sort of difficulty in separating the two is what sort of created this culture of conservatism in Iran and place where like, to, especially coming from Satrapi's eyes, which are like the eyes of someone who was a child when experiencing the revolution and doesn't fully understand what's going on as much as she might try to educate herself. And I think also one of the reasons that she doesn't understand what's going on is because basically everyone in Iran, or at least that we see, feels those same conflicts that like there, there is a conflict between like the life that they have sort of become accustomed to living and then the life that is now being imposed upon them and the, and the different ways that those can sort of clash or coincide with their ideologies. Uh, I, I don't know. Take, take the wheel here. <laughs> even, even asking me that question makes me sound like I'm so much more intelligent than I am. <laughs> Again, I'm, um, I'm just going off of things I read like yesterday. So, No, I, I, one thought I did have kind of... Um, well, while you were asking that, is that I think there is a parallel to be drawn between Satrapi herself and 
Iran um, in that you kind of have her as this this figure who when she goes to Vienna, uh, though she is so so much a product of sort of the, the leftists in her family and in her country, notwithstanding all of the sort of contradictions within that that we see about social class, et cetera, uh, she is deeply traditional compared to most of those around her. Um, she describes herself as like the traditionalist when it comes to, you know, her friend Julie being very open about her sexuality and that sort of thing that makes her deeply uncomfortable. So she's kind of stuck in between those two, uh, feeling that she doesn't really belong in Iran, um, much as she has that deep sense of home, but also feeling that she doesn't belong, uh, I suppose, in the West. Uh, and I think, at least from what I understood, reading sort of the more historical sections of the book and reading things online about the the history of the government in, in Iran, you also have that country sort of stuck between uh, this idea of the West, but really most of the ideas that are uh, kind of imported into the country are more Russian, more communist. The, the British, as maybe more of a common idea of the West, are present, but really only as an influence over the government. And so you have the country itself kind of stuck between, uh, I don't want to say the two factions of the Cold War, but between certainly more Russian ideals. And obviously they talk about Karl Marx a great deal in it uh, and portray God as being Marxian with less curly <laughs> hair. Um, uh, between that and then the the idea of the threat of the West, which is a much more sort of American, British, idea. So I, I just thought that kind of parallel of Satrapi and her home country as being stuck between these competing ideas, that stood out to me. Um, yeah. Yeah. And- I don't know how good that is. <laughs> what we say to ourselves every time we record. Uh, I, I think also, in addition to what you're getting at, I think another element of it is that there is this third pole, which is that this, you know, we're in the Middle East. We're in like one of the most like historically more than any other place in the world, this is a place where, you know, like historical civilizations have existed and where like cultural memory is so baked in. And so on the one hand, you have two very powerful, especially like politically powerful in the late 20th century, two very powerful ideologies that are like pulling on either side of them. But then to, if I may extend the metaphor, you also have like, it is like very hard to pull in either direction because of these roots that are so deeply dug into the the culture. And then, and we see that, you know, sort of over the course of the, the book is like, you know, the ways that Satrapi sort of begins to intersect with different elements of like that culture, whether it's the Islam elements of the culture, then obviously at the end, sort of towards the end, you have that sort of mythological project that she works on and so I think like it is (laughs) I think that's you know part of the reason that it's an incredibly difficult book to sort out politically and you know sort of era in history of Iran to sort out politically because you have like these sort of three directions all pulling and I think that you know in the same way that in any culture that like people sort of have to find their place in terms of what parts of basically of each culture that they're going to take. Like with like Western culture, like Satrapi has an interest in certain elements of Western culture. Like she's interested in Western media and like she, she draws a punk on her wall. Um, But then also like she has these like Marxist ideologies that she's taking for her parents and sort of has this like 
political heart for that side and then the sort of ways in which she clashes with the more like you know Iranian cultural or Islamic cultural roots that are sort of pervading the country I think that sort of like all of those combine and I think because it's it's a personal story it's hard for for the, the narrative's not clean because like her life is not clean and that makes it you know sort of more difficult to project a clear like thematic through line onto it because that's not what she's trying to make yeah I think there's like a big element of it is what she's trying to actually accomplish with it and who her intended audience is because it's not like she's not writing this for Iranians to read and be like oh this was like you know what it was like she's like you know they they know what it was like they lived through it they are living through it it's intended to be read by Europeans and and Americans and for them to understand like what life in Iran was like at the time so I feel like part of why it feels quite dense is because she also has to do a quick sort of like uh, brief history of like Persia and Iran from like you know 1500 BC to to now Um, and then like position like the Iran of that time within that context and then sort of be like and this is what it was like for us to like you know interact with western culture at the time and like all those different elements are part of sort of introducing um, the western world to a version of Iran that they probably do not really like recognize or connect with when all they really know is like hey did you hear about like that plane and like you know which plane is this (laughs) (laughs) they're like a plane that was uh taken hostage like a a u2 i think (laughs) i'm thinking of a passenger plane um anyways and like you know the whole like the iran contra affair and like all of all of that stuff like that's the picture they have they don't have the picture of like the 12 year old girl who's like Mm -hmm. i want a michael jackson like pin on my shirt um and i think it's it's like yeah she has a michael jackson pin on her (laughs) there's there's a part where i talk about michael jackson (laughs) (laughs) no no i said to quote the street dealer jekyll maxson yes he does say that Now, David, do you want to do your three kings? Um, my, <laughs> I was doing that yesterday morning. There is, uh, of course, in the film Three Kings, a part where the guy directed, uh, by, David directed by David O. Russell, the guy who goes on to play, um, what is that character's name in Wonder Woman? Is it Samir? And they all call him Sammy? I don't know. Anyways, the guy who goes on to be in Wonder Woman is in that and he has the three, the titular three kings captive and brings up Michael Jackson and they're very confused and he clarifies by saying, you know, Michael Jackson, the king of pop, hoo hoo, he he. It's very good. I quote it very often. Um, But to return to my main point, I think that like part of the appeal and popularity of this book is actually rooted in something that's quite similar to why those posts that are like check out like these people in Iran wearing jeans also are very popular is because it introduces like a new version of Iran that like if people who only like even really know the name of the country and that like it is a fundamentalist like Islamic society that's like the only image that they have and so the introduction of these alternative ideas can be like quite paradigm shifting and quite recontextualizing and so I think that well obviously 
Persepolis is much more sort of elegant uh, and thorough of a way of kind of introducing some of those ideas and, and concepts. I do feel like it's rooted to some extent in the same sort of like gasp shock moment that is elicited by those photos uh, that that causes them to be so popular and resonate so much with people. I thought you were going to say more elegant than Three Kings. Um, and, <laughs> it's but been I, a while since I saw Three Kings, so I can't <laughs> comment on its elegance. To that same point, I think it's a real it's a real piece of advocacy as well, like in the writing, how much it is about like, look at A, like regardless of the incredible difficult things that were going on during the time of her upbringing, look at how much of a normal childhood it is, like bullying a kid or feeling bullied or blah, blah, blah. Um, and in that same like writing article, uh, she says, I've been justifying why it isn't negative to be Iranian for 20 years. Uh, and I think that kind of goes to it. Like she is saying, yeah, like the people are flawed. She obviously like criticizes her parents in different ways. Um, but it is just the story of a kind of an ordinary life in extraordinary circumstances as well. Um, and then, I mean, to, to point out how difficult that is at the end of that article, there was a blurb by presumably the editorial team saying, Hey, here's how you could try to do a graphic novel sort of thing yourself. And they give five examples of things you could write about. It is first time you met a good friend, first day at a new school, memorable athletic event, funniest or saddest thing that ever happened to you and where you were on 9-11. Um, so I think that sort of undercuts <laughs> a little bit of the message that's being portrayed in the article by the illustrator and author of Persepolis. Yeah, and I, I think that that sort of gets to what I was thinking when you were talking, David, is that like, it, while it is in, in many ways, you're right, it, is, it does feel like it's written you know, for a Western audience, certainly, uh, as opposed to an Iranian audience. And, you know, for people who are interested in learning more about Iran, but it also does feel very hostile to a certain type of like, I don't know if I, if I would call it a, a sort of liberal, uh, not, not ideology, but behavior in, in, the, in terms of the way that she is sort of as a, a foreigner and, you know, coming from Iran, she is sort of like exoticized in a way when she's in Austria. And I think that sort of leads to a lot of the feelings of her, her, her feelings of alienation that she, she sort of becomes like, you know, the, the whole, whole thing with Momo where it's like, she is like the authority on death because she has been through war and, you know, the, she's, you know, taken to different places and meeting parents who are, you know, very interested in her story. And it's so interesting. And like, you know, there's a part where they're having a discussion they say, Oh, it's so interesting to have an outside perspective I think that that is a big reason why she like has difficulty, whether you want to call it assimilating or just adjusting to life in Austria is that she is like this perpetual outsider. And I think that is very indicative of a sort of, uh, you know, I think we see both uh, a more conservative or a more right wing and a more left wing <laughs> approach to sort of interacting with immigrants and the ways in which that both can be like emotionally traumatic in some way that like the the more left-wing elements like they they treat her as a curiosity in some way and then and that that like sort of becomes her identity and because she is it seems like floundering to find an identity that that just like does not work for her part of i think part of why she feels very 
other in many different circumstances and situations. I mean, obviously, like her her experience and being like in terms of her political orientation and personality at odds in with the system in Iran, and then just by virtue of being an immigrant, she's out of place in other places and and settings. You know, that's that's obviously a huge part of it. But I feel like another part of it is just that she's very much an individualist and like not someone who you know we see her from a very young age sort of like questioning social norms questioning um you, you know asking impolite questions basically and I think that's something that she's like probably prone to do in in many different circumstances I, <laughs> I was reading a profile of her in which she described herself as having some of Hitler in her uh, <laughs> in in terms of like her uh like I guess her her inner fire not (laughs) in terms of her political alignment I'm trying to find the exact quote um because it's I would have picked a different person I I, have an internal she's very charismatic and convincing like (laughs) I've actually been thinking about incorporating a character into my novel Uh, okay you can't you can't mention that and not talk about Alphonse Hilter We've already talked about Alphonse Hilter on, the, on this podcast before. Yes, we have. Um, riff it's... for a bit while I find this uh, this quote. Well, I'll you know let's let's inject some levity into the proceedings. Uh, Alphonse Hilter is sort of the the this means pepper of this podcast. Jekyll Maxon. The Jekyll Maxon. I don't I don't quite see the connection. Do you know what this means pepper, Eric? <laughs> It feels very, it feels like a very us thing. Uh, this is from the With Gordon and Rust podcast. So uh, we're not, uh, just, okay. not just directly excising jokes from <laughs> other podcasts and inserting them into ours. But uh, Paul Rust tells this story about how like he was like a kid at summer camp and was being like bullied by other kids and being chased around and then like was like cornered and then spotted a pepper shaker and then lifted up and said, this means pepper. <laughs> As in a reference to, <laughs> this means war. Right. <laughs> and everyone was utterly baffled by it, which feels like <laughs> something we would have done as children, perhaps. <laughs> uh. I can't find the part where she talks about how she has a little bit of Hitler uh, in her, but this, this I feel like emph- captures like kind of everything about who she is as far as like standing in opposition to accepting something just because like it is the way she the way that it is um so she's talking to the uh the journalist um and she wants to they originally were going to meet in a restaurant and then she says no come to my hotel room so I can smoke and then she like goes off about the banning of uh of smoking in restaurants a bit of a Mitchell hundred in that way um and she says uh she has no truck with the killjoys who want to stop us enjoying all the things we enjoy simply because it might prolong our life. Anything that has a relationship with pleasure, we reject it. Eating, they talk about cholesterol. Making love, they talk about AIDS. You talk about smoking, they talk about cancer. It's a very sick society that rejects pleasure. Why should we live like sick people just to give some fresh meat to the ground? I hope my meat is so rotten that no worm in the whole universe will want to come and eat it. I want to be rotten to accept the idea of dying which I feel like that's that feels like a very like clean summation of a lot of what we like see of her in uh in Persepolis is just like even 
like it's it's not enough to just be like I don't care that it's socially inappropriate I want to smoke she's got this like whole like tirade within her that is just like waiting to be unleashed um so I yeah, yeah I think they're, they're just like is the it's it's the personal element of it right like I think that she speaks to a lot of the immigrant experience and I think she also paints a portrait of herself as someone who is like controversial, not controversial, uh, con- confrontational um, and like adversarial. Contrarian. And, yes, contrarian also would be a, a good word for it, I suppose. Um, but who, who doesn't kind of back down from an here. argument uh, and yeah, is, is unafraid to sort of like fight those ideas out, which... Um, you know, certainly like probably maybe not so much in Europe, but certainly for like Canadians uh, such as ourselves, the idea of just like going off <laughs> about how yeah. you're pro smoking and you want your meat to be so rotten that no worm in the whole earth would ever consider eating it. <laughs> it's like very, very, um, yeah, just just like not the way that we often approach discourse. Yeah, no, I I think it's interesting because within the book there is so much of a like present but rejected idea of the whole punk thing like obviously with the momo character who has the mohawk and the earring she just really has no time for him and you know she drew punk on her wall and had the you know jean jacket that she had done all up um and she kind of rejects the punk ideals but obviously from that quote there is such a strong sort of uh anti-authority stance that she has like and I guess that makes sense like she she's seen so many iterations of like just a screwed up government in her home country she's seen how the west enabled things she's seen what went uh, what went on in Iraq but I think perhaps we should also pay closer attention to her Hitler comparison and be a little worried uh about this formerly formerly Viennese artist (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, and, and you know, sort of to that idea, I think what also I find very interesting is that in a lot of ways, I think that the political situations that, you know, she dealt with throughout her life, like, are sort of, they they very much impacted her, but it feels like sort of tangentially, like a lot of mm-hmm. times she feels, you know, she's, she's more impacted by the the sort of ground level things like this, this book isn't really about like the politics of Iran in the 1980s it's about what was it like to live in Iran in the 1980s and I think mm-hmm. like that obviously the politics have a huge impact on that especially once you get into like the Iran-Iraq war and like they're having to worry about bombs and things like that but it's it's a much more grounded perspective than I think we're used to seeing because it's not solely about the politics it's also just about how the politics sort of directly impact uh her day-to-day living and you know I, I I almost feel like I think she is extremely like anti-authoritarian in a lot of ways and I think like I don't think that that's drawn from her sort of like cultural upbringing or her political experience like I think she just seems like a very anti-authoritarian person in general and like the uh, uh, the book almost brushes over at certain points where she's like <laughs> Yeah, so I got expelled from this school, and then I went to so live anyways, in this apartment. I was dealing drugs. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, I got kicked out of this apartment. And like, and well, it, it's like, it is funny because like you read those sections of the book, and like you know, obviously it's like it's it's very grim and very like it's the lowest point in her life. I'm sure many people would say, 
and and like you or one of you described it as like kind of the most like depressing section of the book but when you're reading it it's just sort of like it because it's this series of vignettes right and like there's always in every section of the book she sprinkles in both happy and sad vignettes so it doesn't like it doesn't feel any tonally different but like as you're if you read a summary and it's just like so anyways then after she was homeless and dealing drugs she almost died of bronchitis and it's like oh yeah I guess that (laughs) that is what happened (laughs) yeah um I was trying to find Christopher how did Scott describe her to us he he just mentioned like one like one sentence that he said to us that was really I feel like I I don't this is by no means like I'm not speaking from a place of authority here I'm only speaking from my memory uh but I feel like he said something that was like yeah like by all accounts she's a real firecracker yeah and I, re- I seem oh. to recall a winky face also possibly yeah, maybe oh you think that was an email let me see uh but yeah I mean certainly coming from a place of respect I think oh yeah definitely yeah uh, he said, well, I, so I, t- uh, you know, when we spoke to Scott, I told him that our two upcoming miniseries were on BKV and Satrapy. And he said, Brian K is a very cool writer. If you get a chat with Marjen, I'm told she's a real pistol. <laughs> <laughs> a real pistol. Which is like a very, a great way to describe someone. Like, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I think Eric, you winced a little at the, the firecracker, uh, which is what my memory was. But like, it certainly was not a place of like... <laughs> This woman is writing about comics. She's crazy for this one. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think it's very telling that like, uh, you know, and maybe maybe this is just coming from my perspective, but that like the most, the most difficult uh, parts of the book to like <laughs> sort through emotionally are the, those times in Vienna where it's like, she is, you know, she, she's not being plagued by bombs, but she's being plagued by like, horrible ennui and like <laughs> finds it difficult to leave her house and maybe that's just like because that speaks more to my experience but I think it's interesting that like you can someone can go through the experience of like being in a city that is being bombed and being in a country at war and that's just sort of something that you get through because like you are being like you're having these like mm-hmm. impossible extenuating circumstances imposed upon you versus when she's in Vienna and like ostensibly free the only thing like the only thing being imposed upon her is like her own mind and her own feelings and her own like feelings of isolation alienation and I think that is like in many ways the prison of the mind is much more powerful than a prison with bars could ever be you seem like one of her <laughs> Viennese friends <laughs> it's a real well, momo I'm like I'm teaching yeah. the graphic novel class it it is like very um i think i think speaks to a lot of what she's aiming to accomplish with the book in so far as it's like was life growing up in iran during wartime and then under a fairly oppressive regime difficult like absolutely and like we had parties we had like there was lots of joy there was lots of family love like there was a sense of community and friendship was it freeing in many ways to leave that and go to Europe? Yes, but also like it had its own challenges. It had its own struggles, many of which were just as like rooted in the culture and the society of the place as much as anything personal. Right. Um, and like, which which is worse? Like kind of like you be the judge because she's certainly less happy during that season in Vienna than she is during most other parts of the book. 
right? Like what, what drives her to live in the street for three months is not her home in Iran being bombed or something. It's her cheating boyfriend and shitty landlady. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> landlady is so bad. You guys don't like the Frau Doc? <laughs> I think it's interesting stylistically to return to the art for a moment that she came up in like the French art system and France has like its own comics scene Uh, which is like vibrant and strong and and characterized by like Tintin, uh, not French, but like Tintin is obviously a huge- By Ergé, who was racist. Yeah, (laughs) your classic bit, Ergé, who was racist. Um, (laughs) I just think it's important to note. But yeah, like the band dessinée, like so the where the two kind of like ends of the spectrum in that one, I think about it at least are like Tintin and Asterix would be like the two at like one end of the- sort of spectrum and then like anything by Mobius would be sort of like at the other end of the spectrum and this is like it's a comics tradition that has been around for you know at at least as long as the American comics tradition if not longer in terms of sort of like the social reception of it like it's it's in many ways seen as a much more sort of like valid thing there than um, than it has traditionally been in North America in part probably because of a broader diversity of genre but um, so it's this very strong tradition in which she was like formally trained by going to art school and then like developed professionally through her association with like these other cartoonists after she graduated but I see like nothing of it in her actual art like like it it doesn't it doesn't look like a Tintin comic at all but obviously like it's closer in terms of sort of the stylization to that more cartoony style like it definitely doesn't look like a Mobius comic (laughs) um so I, I it's just very it's it's surprising to me the extent to which I feel like it most looks like Mouse yeah I I have not read Mouse so I can't uh speak to that but certainly like I do I I love the art in this and I love like it does seem to be like a blend of, you know, the a, a sort of a simple and clean. I think she, one of her like great talents or you know the great positives of one of, of this book is that like she can work in so many different ways, and I think that that's like why it's great that this is a graphic novel rather than like a written memoir or, or even a movie or something like that. Like. I think that her art is able to like express things in so many different ways. And I think that like her, she is willing to sort of dive into those more like impressionistic sort of works. And then also like come back to, you know, she can draw a scene where it's two people having a conversation and most of it looks normal. And then you could have either like Uh, a panel that's like representative of like a political ideology or even just like an establishing shot like I'm looking at a shot here where it's like three kids like walking under trees and like it looks crazy (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I think that that's sort of to your point David I think that that's like it's it's great that this became a a comic because I don't you know if, if she went to the U.S. then I don't know that it would be a comic like like you said, maybe the idea that in France it's a more acceptable sort of medium to publish a work like this in. And, you know, obviously that's steadily changing, but I think like Persepolis is probably something that you would describe as making a change rather than something that is going with a trend. I think it was starting a trend of like 
this type of comic being more acceptable because even mouse like even though it's based on personal experiences is much more of like a fable than this book is even though this book does have some like fantastical elements i i don't know if i'd say that that's true well go off (laughs) as as far as most being a fable i i definitely think that like mouse is the template as far as sort of like the the graphic memoir and I would say that like Persepolis follows it pretty closely. Like, uh, you know, the use of like the anthropomorphic animals is what would really distinguish it, I guess. But like, that's, that's mostly like an artistic image. Like it's not like, right. he's, he's never saying like, it was mice and cats. Like the, all the mice are just called Jews. Um, but it's like, right. it's, it's very much used for artistic effect where like, I was trying to send a different page, but like when he, you see Art Spiegelman draw himself, he just is like a guy wearing a mouse mask, not an actual mouse where it's very much about like, he feels like such an imposter as a Jew because he talks to his father who has like these stories about like basically what he endure, endured for being a Jew that he's like, am I even a real Jew? And, and like his wife converts. So she originally starts as a frog. And then when they get married, she is redrawn as a mouse because she's converted <laughs> to Judaism, like things like that, that are like, you know, he's, a, he, he uses it very much to sort of reinforce themes mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, turning it into like a, a fable per se. Yeah. And that, that's interesting because I think that it, that's very similar to Persepolis and a lot of the, that, you know, like we were sort of talking about in sort of the, the, the Europe years that it speaks to that idea of like because I think I think simultaneously she presents her experiences as like no better or worse than like I think she you know she presents her experiences in Vienna as similar to her experiences in Iran at least in terms of like their emotional impact on her and things like that but then she also touches on this idea, like, you know, it's almost like a, a survivor's guilt thing in some way that she feels like her problems are so much less because she, you know, is not in Iran and having to deal with the war and things like that. Even though like she, it certainly feels like she is closer to dying in Vienna than she ever was in Iran. You know, you know obviously uh, the bombing of the Baba levies aside. I, I think, I mean, it's something we've kind of talked around a little bit so far, but it's, it's interesting how much, well, these are two maybe contradictory things, but on the one hand, this isn't really an immigrant story. Um, like so much of it is focused on her home country and like she goes back. Uh, and yet at the same time, there is that, uh, yeah, the whole middle trunk in Vienna where she's struggling with the guilt of like, am I not doing enough with my life having been given this opportunity? Um, which is obviously a very real thing. Like my wife moved to Canada when she was seven years old. And that's something that she talks about at times. Like it's similarly, like originally grew up on a street that had a lot of, you know, violence and that kind of thing. And everyone had bars on their windows and guns, et cetera. Um, And living a very different life now, but there can still be that feeling of like, okay, but for all my family back home, like, am I doing everything I should? Uh, And I thought it was very interesting just how, uh, and I think I've said her name four or five different ways now. Uh, Satrapi, like, <laughs> how do you say it? I don't know. I say, me... say Satrapi. Okay, I'm going to say that too. How Satrapi, uh, yeah, that feels better. Um, like kind of kind of weaves it in. Like it's so much about her being sent away, but really the story is about uh, her sense of home. Yeah, and I, I think that, 
I think that we're sort of, you know, I think I sort of spoke to this a little earlier, but I think in a lot of ways, it's a story, it's, it's such a personal story, and that sort of impacts the, the way that we view it, that like, it is not, you know, it, it lacks a clean narrative structure. And, you know, we talked at the very beginning about how like the ending feels very abrupt, because like, it makes sense that that's where the story ends. But it's also like, you know, that isn't the end of her life. Like it, while it does like mark a large chapter, it, it's not, it's not the end. <laughs> like her life does continue. And like that, that sort of lack of a clean, like the book is about this is difficult because like ultimately the book is about her. And I think a lot of maybe what the book is about is about her feeling of like, no matter where she goes in a lot of ways, like that she has these feelings of alienation, whether it's she and I think, Eric, you talked about this earlier, that, like, she's not quite at home in Iran because, like, she is very, like, outspoken and anti-authoritarian, and that's, like, a dangerous thing to be in Iran, but then has, like, that more traditional and, like, cultural rooting in that area, and so when she goes to, like, an ostensibly, like, more liberal society that, like, she also, like, finds her own feelings of isolation there for very different reasons, and so it, it is very much, like, a coming of age story in a lot of ways and that it's about her sort of learning to find sort of like be comfortable within herself and also uh you know we don't see this in the book but uh, I think probably France is representative of a place where she can sort of find that middle ground between home which is Iran for her and then like you know a place where she can sort of express herself in the ways that like she wants to. Yeah. The, the word for that, I don't know if you guys have touched on this before, but like the literary term is uh, a Bildungsroman, um, which is like the story of the formation of the artist kind of. And, uh, and this is definitely that I, I would have been very interested to read this kind of in its four discrete parts to see kind of what, what comes of having a sense of kind of what each part is about and how they add up. Uh, but of course I didn't do that. Yeah, the well, I I sort of I was aware or looked into the separation of the two books where you know, it's pretty clear like the first book ends with her leaving to go to Vienna, and then it's mm-hmm. like the, I think what David alluded to like the third book is mostly about her in Vienna, and then you have this sort of fourth chapter which is about her back in Iran, and mm-hmm. I, I think that's like that's a very interesting part of the book as well because like it feels like you know like again like in a more traditional structure it would be like you have the first part where it's in Iran and she's sort of having that. And then the second part is like, she's in a new place. She has to learn to adjust. She has to, you know, confront her, her emotional turmoil, but it's not that because that wasn't what her life was. Like it's a, it's a very interesting path where sort of, you know, you have to, you have to go home again to sort of find out what you were looking for, which sounds like a YouTube there. You do that though. Uh-huh. Go home again. And speak on that. <laughs> you can never go home again it's like a thing there's a comic called oh, that also it's interesting matt rosenberg and it was fine there's a movie called home again mm. there's Reese a, Witherspoon. a movie and stage play called come from away mm. i'm really getting somewhere here i may be moving to st john's in a couple months <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, well, I'm slightly... I just hope for your sake you don't have to stop over in Gander for several weeks. <laughs> <laughs> you, you gonna, is that a threat? Uh, as with the other comments I've made, I leave it open to the interpretation of the hearer. 
uh, death of the author, etc. Some of you guys are cool. Don't fly to Newfoundland tomorrow. It's <laughs> <laughs> a terrible joke. Maybe we should be cut, but we'll see. Um, I was just going to say to bring it back around full circle, but there is a famous photo that I'm sure has also made the rounds on the old school man, cool yeah. subreddit of uh, Fidel Castro tobogganing in Gander during a layover. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> that one I Find have not seen. That's really an effective full circle. Um, I, I feel like st- slightly uh, perturbed that we are one hour into the podcast and we have not uh, summarized the book. Oh, I feel great about that. <laughs> I assumed that was a sign that we were going to forego full summary altogether. Well, we have we have our, our new one minute summary uh, project. I think. Oh, OK. Project. Lay it on me. <laughs> OK, set the clock. For set the clock. <laughs> Good afternoon. <laughs> that's it's a thing that they say in the bill maher theme song i think it's a theme song i don't know i only know it as a cultural touch point not as something i would actually watch but yes just just to you know very briefly because i i hope there well i don't know if i hope there are people that have been listening and have not read the book or if i hope for their sake that they have not you got 50 seconds oh no okay so <laughs> Marjane Satrapi, she's a little girl. She was born in like 1970-ish. And so she's 10 years old when the Iranian revolution happens, which causes Iran to shift very dramatically from like a more uh, becoming liberalized state to a more theocratic state. Uh, Her parents are leftists. She goes through a bunch of stuff while she's in Iran. (laughs) Uh, You know, she grows up, she finds love and loses it. Uh, she goes to Vienna for a while. That's a whole cluster, you know what. Uh, she comes back to Iran. She goes to art school. She gets married. She gets divorced. And then she goes to France. Nice. That... <laughs> How many seconds do I have left? <laughs> Three seconds to spare. Wow. Um, so, of course, because this is somebody's life, there aren't plot holes for us to pick at as we normally would uh, or <laughs> important questions to ask about gas masks or anything like that I guess something that I was surprised I had like never heard mentioned about the book before because I hadn't read it before is like the extent to which her family was politically connected and like the revelation of like her grandfather as a prince I was like wait what like this feels like I and I know they're like he was one of like hundreds of princes but I'm like this still feels like quite relevant when you think about her uncle was the prime minister yeah and like it's it's such like a crazy revelation that i was like i'm i'm surprised that there's not more like reflection on that piece of it and maybe it's just sort of like another another way in which you know the like she she talks a little bit about how like they were a sort of upper middle class family and there were a lot of things already that sort of set them apart from a lot of her neighbors. But I was just like, this seems like a big deal <laughs> to, to be like mostly fly under the radar. Even like when, like when they talk about like um, Anoush and like his resistance and like towards the end of the book, when she gets that guy arrested to sort of like deflect attention off of herself and her grandmother, like (laughs) it's a crazy part, but her grandmother like takes her to task for that and says like your grandfather sacrificed himself. Like, I'm just surprised. Like he's, he's such an absent figure in a way that is very like, I I don't know. I was just surprised when I was like, Oh, he's the prince and he's like not in it at all. And we're not really going to discuss like, 
<laughs> maybe there's nothing to discuss, <laughs> but it was very surprising to me. Yeah, and that he or someone else in her family like invented Azerbaijan. <laughs> <laughs> uh but yeah i think that that is a very that is a very interesting point and maybe that speaks to sort of like her perspective or maybe just the thing that she the things that she wants to write about like it's interesting because like there there are like you know and i was gonna mention earlier that uh your your wife's feelings of uh you know needing to do more thankfully as second generation immigrants we have shed that mantle entirely in her <laughs> to do nothing doing your comics podcast <laughs> <laughs> yes we do not have a successful private practice like some people do um <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, like there, there are parts, you know, if I were to write my own Persepolis, which would probably be as good and as successful, uh, but I just don't feel like it. Um, I, <laughs> I know you would. That's very sad on your part. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you just give me a copy. Who knows? Yeah, I'd sign it and stuff. But I, I, yeah, I think there are parts in our family history that like feel important, but that we maybe just don't have like, you know, talking about like, you know our grandparents upbringing in china or things like that like i'm sure those do inform our family history in like some very very like significant ways and i feel like we as a family have like only recently started like digging into that and being like so like where did they come from and like why did they leave and like when did this happen and things like that um but like it's just like is such a foreign thing that it's like it's more something that we know about intellectually and maybe we have like not <laughs> been maybe like we just don't have not had the emotional faculties to like reckon with these like ideas because you know like it, it is like intergenerational trauma in a lot of ways or at least like this like her element of her past I'm sure has had like such a huge impact on her upbringing and like the situation that her parents were in like when they had her and things like that but like maybe either just because of a lack of knowledge about it or you know maybe she just didn't want it to talk about that in the book that that is like something that she shied away from it certainly is true that sometimes I will like mention tidbits of like things from our family and people will be like wait what <laughs> like that seems crazy and I'm like oh, maybe it was <laughs> famously uh both of our parents were born in India <laughs> yeah classic classic shocker neither of classic Indian, both born in India classic two truths and a lie yeah truly um the one that I feel like often blows people away is when I like it doesn't cut well Brittany and my wife loves to bring it up because it's like a funny interesting tidbit but like our our BAA who was uh like prof at the local university uh and like a PhD candidate was like self-educated <laughs> up to like That's... everything before you haven't heard this this is like the whole like he could nine I thought he was a square because he was at the library all the time because well, he was like, a square but <laughs> <laughs> because he like self-educated himself up to the point that he was accepted to like take a phd <laughs> which wow. like which yeah again, again it's something that's like sure that's like crazy and it has like no bearing on my life at all <laughs> well, like no no bearing like in terms of our like direct day-to-day -day life and i think that that yeah. sort of gets back to what we're talking about which is that like this book is so ground level in terms of like i don't think she really 
tries to reckon with like certainly like about Iran as a country and even about her own family like she doesn't try to reckon with those things I think because like there are so many different things that can like muddy the waters there and like I think that it's it's like to the book's benefit that she doesn't try and like you know my life is kind of like the history of Iran or anything like that (laughs) yeah for sure which she absolutely could do and I think like people like you know most audiences would be hard pressed to challenge her on it but I think that it's probably for the best that she shines away from that where it's like yeah like that her grandfather being a prince like probably didn't impact her daily life in ways that she was conscious of but I think like if you if you dug deep enough back into that then like there's there's a bit of a butterfly effect that goes on there I must say so the first book which ends with her leaving for Vienna is 153 pages I feel like if someone was like you must make an autobiographical comic and have 153 pages worth of events from your life that happened before you were 14, I would be like, oh, <laughs> like, <laughs> especially if they were like, and also it must be like in a vignette format and you have to spend like at least four to five pages on like each, each moment. I would be like, what are like the... <laughs> Way, like 25 well, stories from my life before. I know obviously like yeah her life is a the, little more interesting yeah her her life is is certainly expanded by you know living in interesting times uh as the the Chinese proverb, proverb goes um but even just like yeah I, I don't know I couldn't do like multiple pages on like <laughs> a conversation that I had with one of my grandmothers <laughs> when I was like 13 yeah i mean i'm famously i dump out personal memories in order to make more room for trivia <laughs> i think we've <laughs> talked about this on the podcast before <laughs> that like anytime i'm just like oh yeah i guess i did do that or like i guess i this thing did happen <laughs> it's just like uh, did you know that demarcus cousins scored 26 points a game in 2017 <laughs> Uh, a real Chris Webber yeah. figure, in my opinion. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> we'll I, I have a question. <laughs> um, I have a question for you guys, just because when you when you Google Persepolis, a lot of what comes up is about like American parents wanting it banned from being taught in their right. children's schools because of language and depictions of torture and that kind of thing. Um, do you guys think this is? really a children's book uh i wouldn't say it's a children's book but i wouldn't have a problem with like an eighth grader reading it or like a seventh grader mm-hmm. yeah like, i think i think a 12 year old could read most of it and be it's like she lived it when she was 12 so like <laughs> you know yeah. she turned out okay <laughs> yeah i mean like i i certainly would not describe it as a children's book no like i i like i'm sure in, uh like a 12 year old or whatever could read it in a way that sort of like hears what an experience of childhood is like in a different country under like dramatically different cultural and political circumstances than like the one you are living in but the that's not really what the book is about exactly like it, it is more like about uh, an adult reflect you know a young adult maybe but reflecting on a childhood and sort of being like hey it's you know it's a very classic like young adult thing where it's like when you actually think about it like courage the cowardly dog was actually super messed up 
and like it is like the more the more intellectually robust version of that perhaps where she's like yeah, well like, I, th- I think it's probably more in the same vein of like when i turned on like back to the future for a bunch of 10 year olds and then was like wow this movie <laughs> really is not appropriate for 10 year olds have to be with uh, ferris bueller <laughs> he drops the f-bomb in that one uh, but yeah, like yes, I think like I think Back to the Future is another good where it's like it is in many ways it's about or you know it's created by an adult reflecting on like this these times of childhood and like recontextualizing them and like sort of realizing you know that uh, your own ignorance in a lot of ways that like you, you well didn't... and just that like people the parts that people remember are like and then the delorean gets like struck by lightning and not like so there's this kid marty and he wants to smash his girlfriend <laughs> like that's like <laughs> the first like 10 minutes of the movie is like marty can't wait to get his girlfriend like up to the lake in his new pickup truck so they can have sex <laughs> it's like oh right that's that's what his like character yeah, motivation that's is the, that's certainly the most troubling sexual encounter in that movie yeah right. everything else is pretty kosher <laughs> <I'd say. laughs> if you guys uh, think about it biff is actually kind of the hero <laughs> i thought you were gonna say if you guys think about it biff is actually kind of messed uh no biff uh biff does a great like one quarter zipped up jacket look that uh, i'm mm-hmm, very into true. Um, sometimes he knocks on your head and asks if anyone's <laughs> home <laughs> and no, no one is I am certainly more of a George McFly than a Biff, it can't be denied uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had something relevant to say about Persepolis and that is that yeah, I think it. it I would have no problem with a 12 year old reading it, I, I agree with you uh, Christopher that like I think a 12 year old reading especially like book 2 would probably I, like I don't know how interested they would be but the stuff that people object to and are like this should be banned like it's all really in book one and I feel like that's the book where a 12 year old is going to connect with it the most because like once you get to book two it's like I don't really care about like when she's 17 and like you know having a like doesn't like high school like it's it's probably not as easy to connect to for a younger reader um but yeah I, I wouldn't have any issue with a 12 year old reading it certainly yeah, so which I think first... is like the age group that it's usually introduced to, right? And like that people object right. to. Yeah, I'm sort of paging through because it is like such an incredibly dense book. Do we want to like maybe like dig in a little deeper on the Vienna part? There's the part where she draws herself as a vegetable, which I like a <laughs> lot. You love when people draw themselves <laughs> as something other than humans. That's true, I do. But yeah, like that. I, I don't mean I mean I don't even know if I have anything interesting to say about it even but like that is like a part of the book that like like I said like I found that the most sort of like directly emotionally res- resonant because the, the, of like the what it poses in terms of sort of being among people but also like feeling incredibly isolated and like sort of seeking out people who like will listen or be understanding i guess you're both married so it probably doesn't apply yeah that's right since getting married (laughs) i've never felt alone especially when i wanted to am i right hey (laughs) during uh the vienna section she moves into a house where uh in her own words she has eight roommates all of them homosexuals what show 
is it where there's a character who has like eight gay dads? Huh? I think it's called Eight Gay Dads. <laughs> that does what? sound like it would be a TLC. Uh, Are you talking about My Three Dads? No. Oh, I think it's Bojack Horseman. Uh-huh. I feel like his sister. Oh, my two dads. Uh, yeah, like you, sister. You were Three men that. and a baby. Uh, are you thinking of the film Delivery Man starring Vince Vaughn? Do you know about Maybe that you movie? tell me more. <laughs> or Starbuck, the Canadian original. I think regardless, we can uh, get into this. So David is, of course, the uh... main character. I'll just read this sentence from the Delivery Man Wikipedia page. Oh, wait, hold on. Oh my yes, gosh. I was right. I was right. Hollyhock, Mannheim, Mannheim, Guerrero, Robinson, Zilberschluck, Sung, Fonzarelli, McQuack, uh, sure. is, is Bojack's sister. She was adopted by eight fathers in a committed gay polyamorous relationship. Jumping up and down, I was right. I was right. It was a character <laughs> from Bojack Horseman who has eight gay dads. I just knew I read um, that and I was like, this is like a joke from something. <laughs> Eric, you'll be delighted to know that Delivery Man is a remake of Starbuck, <laughs> directed by the same director. Uh, one day, David returns home from work to find a lawyer representing a sperm bank, where he gave 693 donations and earned a sum of $24,255 during his student years, who tells him that the clinic gave his samples to the women in the clinic and that he has fathered 533 children. <laughs> Of those, 142 have joined a class action lawsuit to force the fertility clinic to reveal the identity of Starbuck, the alias he used. Uh, so that's kind of a reverse of the situation you're describing. <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. I, I, I feel like we, we really were doing well for like an hour there, and now we have got a little... Lost the plot a little bit. Is there is there anything else we want to uh, to go deep on? Do we want to talk about the fact that the CIA did not acknowledge their role in the Iranian coup until 2013. Oh yeah. Go off on that. Well, I feel like, have we talked about CIA backed coups before? Have we? I feel like it's come up There's on a lot of them before. for sure. There are certainly yeah. a lot. I mean, like it's just, it's such an, I, I think that one, you know, certainly I think from a Western perspective, perhaps that, her relationship with Western culture and Western politics are, is like so interesting to me because there is this like, and, and, you know, with the, with the country of Iran in general, because it is like so hard to divorce Western culture from like (laughs) this very direct, like Western influence that has been had on the country. Sorry, I'm just scanning the article, United States Involvement in Regime Changes, which is broken down into like 12-year periods. <laughs> A great Wikipedia article up there with a list of musical supergroups, list of <laughs> movies considered the worst. That's a Wikipedia article? It's a great, it's a great title for a Wikipedia article at the bare minimum. Yeah, no, great, great read, great comic. Um, I will say, so... Where uh, obviously, like, this is maybe more of a, like, final uh, satrapy episode topic, but since we're talking about uh, by far her best known work, I would say, and her signature work in many ways, I'm surprised by, like, this is a very famous comic that's, like, very widely read, taught in schools, um, you know, pointed to as kind of one of the classics of its genre, and yet, like, 
I feel like I would hesitate to describe it as influential. Like I can't really think of like who, who I, and maybe it's a consequence of like satrapy working primarily in France. And like, it's very possible that it's had much more of an impact sort of like in the French scene. It's possible that like, I've, I've read a little bit about how like there was uh, like Persepolis 2.0 where some Iranian (laughs) artists like used images from it and like changed the text to talk about like more sort of current issues. Um, so it's possible that like maybe in Iran, she's much more considered much more influential, but I have a hard time thinking of like, who are the, like the like satrapy acolytes or like, who are the, like, what are the spiritual successors to Persepolis in terms of like body of work? Uh, well, like Alison Bechtel, maybe, I don't know when she first started, but like, I think, I think because, uh, first of all, but, but yeah, I did, uh, read the Persepolis 2.0 thing. And what I think is like, very interesting about it because like you know it's not really a comic it's more like a like infographic pamphlet (laughs) (laughs) it's more like a pamphlet about Iranian politics but I think what is like very interesting about that as like a work is like the reason it doesn't really work is because like that's so not what Persepolis is like Persepolis isn't a page where it's like like it doesn't have a page where it's like top left panel like many people were upset that the government was doing this it's like then this happened it's like there are there are moments like that but it's more about like it's like this was happening and so like we went so out my dad and joined... like told me this yeah yeah like, my dad told me my this family or we went this. out and yeah. did this and like yeah like and that sort of gets back to the idea like it is very ground level and i think that the reason that it maybe is not like initially apparent as influential and i think it certainly was influential certainly in terms of sort of popularizing the concept of like the graphic memoir uh to western answers because like you know this this is a book that gets talked about as like one of the great graphic novels um and i think that most people like when they're like it's a memoir but it's also a comic book is like that's sort of like the selling point there's a there's a pull quote from gloria steinem that i saw yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. they were crazy for this one um <laughs> But I think the reason that it maybe is not like very clearly like directly influential is because it's so personal and so in tune with her own style. That it's like like if you were if you were like okay, I'm gonna rip off Persepolis, what would you do? Like what you would probably end up doing is well, like I'd tell a story would... about where I was on 9/11. <laughs> uh, but, Combined but... with a memorable athletic event. <laughs> Uh, like the time you read cross country in jeans. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's a classic example of something that like, if I was trying to write my own memoir, like I for sure would include because it's so funny, (laughs) but, but I would have to like, literally like if I was doing this I would legitimately have to have like hour-long interviews with like every member of my family and like friends from childhood to be like can you just like remind me (laughs) what's something I did that was like completely random and kind of troll (laughs) uh but but yeah like back to my point uh if you'll excuse me uh I think that like like I said like if you were like I'm going to make my own version of Persepolis then like the way that you make your own version of Persepolis is you write about your life experiences in your art yeah. style. And so like, I think that it's more, maybe more about like the cultural broadening of the idea that's like, uh, and you know, obviously this is uh, again, like <laughs> I'm, I, I'm perpetually very glad that we started with Scott McLeod because I feel like we keep sort of coming back to his principles a lot. And I think 
uh, a big thing that he talks about is sort of like the expansion of like people's conception of what a comic can be is like such a big thing that like has not really caught on as much in the West or, you know, is starting to, but only in the last like 20 years or so. And I think maybe that is, if you want to talk about like a lasting legacy that, that it, it did sort of, you know, I think the reason that it became popular and the reason that it blew people away at that time is just because like people didn't have any conception that this is what a comic could be. And that like, you could present this story in this format and, and that because the, story and like the the art and stuff is so inexorably tied to the format that that like sort of you know makes it very important as like a work of comics i think uh and it's been a while since i read this but i think the alison bechtel comparison is apt um like especially the vienna section reminded me a great deal of uh fun home um which is similarly sort of a deeply personal the musical based on the graphic novel oh oh Musical ah. Broadway show. <laughs> Fun home. Sorry, the only uh, musical based on a graphic novel I am interested in is uh, Spider-Man Turn Out the Dark. Turn off the dark, please. Turn off the dark. Turn out the dark almost makes too much sense. <laughs> yeah, just the, uh, like, I, th- I think if you were to write something, especially in like a North American context that was inspired by Persepolis, it would look a lot like Fun Home of like growing up in a, you know, I think small Pennsylvania town or something. Um, and I mean, that one obviously enjoyed such success that it was adapted into a musical, um, <laughs> which I mean, I think speaks a little bit to the fact that certainly to a Western audience and especially, I mean, a North American audience, it's a little, there is something inaccessible about this book because it presents such a different viewpoint of a country and of an experience than most of us, uh, line up with yeah and and sort of to what we've been talking about sort of throughout this like i think that another thing that makes it difficult maybe for you know and obviously (laughs) this was a very successful book in in the west many countries (laughs) in many countries but i think part maybe part of what makes it difficult is back to what we sort of said earlier is that like she like it does not present a very like this is not and I think maybe if it came out today, it might be, but like, this is not a book where it's like, eh, maybe it is though, but you know, it, <laughs> sorry, I'm about to finish that thought. You're almost there. This is, while this might seem on its face to be like the, the latest liberal craze that it's like all the liberals are buying this book. That's about like, like this it's a comic book, which is kind of crazy, but also like it's libs like, it's are about- owning this book. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but yes, that it is like libs are owning this book, you know, like like white fragility last year or something uh-huh. like that. Like, right. It's like it becomes like a craze that's sweeping the nation because it's like, oh, like it's about Iran. Like this is actually really interesting. But because like it, it's not it doesn't represent it's not it's not an easy book to digest from that paradigm. I don't think like it is not it doesn't present a view of Iranian like, culture. You, yeah, it doesn't tell you what to think about. Iran mm. or like the Iranian Good revolution point. really it, except insofar as like war is bad which is like you know yeah got it and I, I, <laughs> and it's like unsurprisingly Middle Eastern politics are like incredibly complex and even more so when you're coming at it from like an outsider perspective who can't really understand like 
what the political climate was like at that time. And then also it's like, also all of the contemporary sources were lying (laughs) to each other. It's like both sides were like probably misrepresenting what was actually happening to some degree. And so like official media from the time is probably not like all that accurate either. Um, So I think like in that way, like it presents a challenging work to like digest from, you know, like a, a sort of a more facile political way because it is such like a personal work. And also like to, to the Alison Bechtel point, I think what's interesting is like, cause I was trying to look at her work and sort of see how the timelines match up because like thanks to watch out for started in like the eighties. And I think sort of gradually became a more like serialized work over time. But I think that is like what the graphic memoir would be in American culture, certainly in like the 20th century is like comic strips and like, like newspaper strips. Like I'm thinking of like for better or worse, where it's like, in a lot of ways that is like a graphic memoir or like, you know, it's a, it's a comic based recollection and like recounting and illustration of a family. Um, and appropriately the, the great tragedy is that the dog died. <laughs> Precisely. And so like, I, yeah, I think that like maybe that is what that looked like in Western comics for a while. And that, that, that maybe, you know, maybe not percent plus alone, but, that that was sort of part of a movement to sort of broaden people's conception of what like different comics works could be both with X's works also with an X. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, I just, I feel like a lot of that stuff what existed in like various different forms in the alt scene and, and like yes. spun very much out of mouse where like, like Chester Brown is someone who comes to mind as as someone who was like writing memoirs, like graphic memoirs in like even the 90s. Uh, he was married to Suki and Lee for a little while, I think. Hmm. Pretty sure they were living together, but had broken up when she made Short Bus. We, That's what I want to say. We're going to have to talk about Short Bus. second time we've brought up Short Bus. <laughs> is it really? I believe it has come up before. Most famously... Famous, famous for being a film with unsimulated, with non-simulated sex scenes. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, in which uh, CBC radio personality Sukyun Lee stars. Yes, <laughs> Eric, you look like you're learning this for the first time. I have heard of Short Bus. I uh, I didn't realize it was that Sukyun Lee. Oh, so. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, let's just say that that opera. movie is definitely not the opera yeah um but yes i'm pretty sure chester brown has come up and we have inexorably been led to that discussion as well yes well it's because he so he wrote uh, one of his graphic memoirs is called paying for it and it's like right. his his like story of like being a john basically and it, the precipitating event is that he breaks up with sukyun lee <laughs> right yeah and i i think that you've maybe hit on a good point there like it is probably more accurate to call it like a post mouse sort of like boom in and that like mouse is probably the one to point to that uh like opened that door in a lot of ways but then obviously like you know i think that there the value comes from when you get like a bunch of you know like at, you know like i said like the your version of ripping off persepolis or ripping off mouse is to just like make a comic about your life in your style right which I think, is like that's what like like congratulations like you've discovered the world of graphic memoirs where it's like where like Persepolis I think it can't be 
in some ways it like almost can't be influential in like the American comic scene because mm. it comes out, everyone is like, this is amazing. This is like a masterpiece. This is like, you know, kind of a, a crystallization of the form it's executed perfectly, but then imitators just are imitating something that like it, it, she's, it's not necessarily like so revolutionary in the American scene in terms of like the genre or anything. It's more sort of like the crystallized like presentation of like, here's how to do it the right way. And then in the places where it probably is very revolutionary and influential in those ways, i.e. like France and uh, the Middle East, it's just like 99% of those comics are just never going to reach North America. (laughs) That's like, for all I know, like it could have sparked like a huge thing in France. And I like, I would never know about it unless those comics get translated and distributed in North America. It's just like, like you just don't ever find out about it. Well, I I mean, not to just be too basic here but like i don't think many of us would have known of like charlie hebdo if it weren't for the attacks that caught like international press attention um that degree of like apparently very nationally famous uh or that kind of very nationally famous satire only kind of reached our shores on the backs of there was a massacre mod on the strength of its own satire well it's like can you imagine it, it like going to like Russia and being like, did you hear about what happened to the staff of Cracked? You'd be like, what? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they're doing good stuff. It is sad that Cracked (laughs) After Hours no longer exists. Uh, Great Uh, video series. Um, But yeah, I'm I'm really, it's interesting. I mean, like, I don't know. I, I doubt that we have context for this. Maybe you do, David, but like, I'm interested in how this became like what it is like, like the place that it occupies in like our modern sort of comics landscape where it is like something people point to as like a foundational work. I mean, like I had not read it when I gave it to Eric and his wife as a gift. And like, I think that that sort of speaks to like, it's like, why did I do that? I can't remember. Of course I've dumped it all personal <laughs> memories. Uh, <laughs> but, but like it, it's, I think a part of it was definitely like, the like immigrant experience of an immigrant woman was a big part of it. Um, But like, it's interesting that like it has come to occupy like a pretty venerated place in like, not just comic circles, but like, you know, when people point to like the best comics, it's like Watchmen and then this, (laughs) that's maybe an exaggeration, but I do think that like it occupies the same sort of like Watchmen air where it's like, you think comics are like totally gross and dumb, but it's actually cool. And this, and also Watchmen is like this as well, um, which is crazy to think about because a it's non-gross like gross book. It's like, you like movies, you should watch either seven or like <laughs> descendants Schindler's list. Sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I'm interested into how it became what it is, especially in like North America, because like, it was published in France. So I can imagine it like being a big sensation in France, but it's like, was it just something that caught on here? Like kind of randomly or is, yeah, was it, I guess, I, I guess the climate at the time also like sort of that post nine 11 climate, it was probably a very interesting and, you know, she wrote it to, for it to be an alternative perspective on, I think like, well, certainly Iran, but also, you know, Middle Eastern culture at large that people yeah. maybe were not seeing in media at that time. Yeah, I, I don't know if I could necessarily like point to any one thing. Like it started getting published in French in 2000 and then translated in 2003. And at that point, like it was already, 
you know, it, do, it doesn't get translated if it's not successful in France. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like already critically acclaimed and publicly adored. And then, yeah, it, it seems to just have come out to immediate uh, <laughs> positive reception, like got featured in time, um, was like already award winning. But yeah, I, I think a big part of it was that it got that like mainstream media coverage that not very many comics get. And, and when you like cross over enough that like you're getting featured in time or like I, I'm seeing that like it was in like in Newsweek as well, had like their it was on their best fiction books list when you get that sort of like crossover basically it's it's kind of like bound to and and it's also something again where it's like you know we've we've talked many times about accessibility it's not a book where you're gonna have to like go to a comic store to find it and like have to figure out how to navigate that you can like you can go into your your local chapters uh, or indigo rip chapters and say like do you guys have Persepolis uh and they probably do (laughs) it's it's one of those like very easily accessible um titles Mm -hmm. and I think that like the post 9-11 atmosphere for sure has a lot to do with that and like 2003 you know it's kind of the perfect spot to be like hey like you know the the news has a lot to say about like the Middle East right now and um you know, Mad TV is doing their hilarious Iran uh, Steve Jobs well, sketch. The Iraq. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> yes, it is. Don't the spoil Iraq. the end of the sketch. Oh, I'm sorry, everyone, for Did the punchline I just ruined. I don't think so. It's a seminal piece of comedy. <laughs> I'll watch um, it later. <laughs> Michael McDonald as Steve Jobs introducing a new product Ooh. called the Iraq. Uh, <laughs> don't get into it. Don't spoil anymore. It's very good. Um, Anyways, it's it is like kind of at the perfect moment to be like, here's an alternative perspective on like the Middle East, basically, that is poised to hit very well. And then, of course, like getting adapted into a movie, that's always like, you know, to get the, the sort of like revival of interest then a few years later and get it that that, that gets it like another round of interest that most comics like after it's released, like you basically have to wait for the movie to to get that second wave of interest and then you know the fact that it makes its way into classrooms as well that's like then instantly like there's there's a certain degree to which it already kind of has to be a classic in order to get into classrooms but the fact that it's in classrooms means that like new kids are being introduced to it all the time and it's it's remaining in sort of like the discourse in a way that most comics are not able to do yeah, and I think like to sort of flip that a little, like it is the the accessibility of it, I think is a very big thing because like on the one hand, it's more accessible as a comic than your average comic, like you were saying in terms of like how you could walk in and find it at a bookstore. But then as a flip side, like as a a memoir about childhood during the Iranian revolution, it is much more accessible to readers as like in, in the format that it's in because like in this graphic memoir format and like you know it, it wouldn't be being taught in schools if it were like just a 300 page written memoir about a woman who grew up in Iran and like went through all these things like I think that the accessibility of it you know I think the Gloria Steinem pull quote that I was talking about like sort of it talks about like the irresistibility of the comic book and like you know that's something that Scott talks a lot about as well that it's like the comic book is in a lot of ways like the the working person's medium in some respects or like you know it's it's a it's a very accessible medium to everyone and I also like you know 
if you're translating it, then like, you know, the because the images are so potent and the art is so potent that like even I think like a botched translation could like or you know uh, or no translation could communicate a lot of what it's going for uh successfully and that maybe contributes sort of to its universality because this does feel like a book where it's like it's like you know it's been translated into 150 languages and it's in 200 countries and I think that that big like you know that that accessibility in that respect does become very important when you're you know trying to or not trying to but becoming more widely read and recognized I uh, will also say like on the translation, it probably benefiting from the fact that Satrapi speaks English, um, but the translation is very like fluid. Like I have read a fair number of translated comics, especially from French. And I usually find that like at some point when you're reading it, there's just something like there's some turn of phrase or like word choice or something like that, that is just like, just wrong enough for you to be like oh yeah this was translated (laughs) um and I didn't have that happen at all in Persepolis which I I guess the the only other series I can think of where that happened is the Paul books which are also Canadian not that Persepolis is Canadian but we are uh but anyways all that to say like French translation tends to be pretty tricky to not like tip your hand that it was not originally written in French and, and so the translation which I think was done by, it's by a few different people actually I think the the I know the first book was translated by her husband and she's listed as like a um, translation supervisor so you know that's that's a good <laughs> collection of people like the original author her husband doing the uh, and her husband doing the translation and like supervising the translation you know that's that's a recipe for like a good translation that both reads well in English and also you have like the full confidence that like this is a, is like an accurate reflection of what she's wanting to say so it's like ideal circumstances but like even I, there's like a, a weird line you have to walk with translation of like do you just say verbatim what they said or do you like colloquialize it a little bit and make it feel more natural for the audience that's reading it in the translated language and like even when that happens like I read a book that was translated into English and then had like punch up done by Neil Adams who is an artist not a writer (laughs) but you know is is an American comics professional and it's like you'd think that like someone who was born and raised in America and only speaks English like doing punch up on this text would make it feel much more like naturalized and like there's still those times where it's like what a weird like choice of words or like what a weird like phrasing of that sentence that uh, you know will just like jog you out of it again for a second yeah something um, that I really like identify within that is uh just in terms of watching the movie like I watched it with the English subtitles and that really made it stand out to me how good the translation in the text is because the subtitles were totally adequate like there was no like obvious failure but they lacked all the sort of feeling um that there is in the book like there was just something much colder about them that made it clear this is a pretty like word for word translation um so yeah this is really excellently done um I agree yeah that, that's that's a very it's a very interesting thing in like foreign movies where the subtitles probably like we are unconscious of like how big of an impact a subtitle can have and you know the translation is the same thing we're like you know it's hard to obviously it's hard to understand original intent in a language you do not speak 
Um, but yeah, like the, the only times I really was like reminded that it was a translation was when it was like too good almost. Because like there's a part <laughs> where it, there's a part where it's like, yeah, like I heard the Iranian national anthem playing, our Star Spangled Banner. And I was like, oh, yeah. well, like that must have been La Marseillaise in, in the original <laughs> version. Or like there's a part where like they're saying something or like they're singing like a made up song and the song rhymes and i was yeah. like well like obviously they like tweaked that so that it would rhyme in english but like it originally rhymed in french uh so like th- those were the moments where like i i was like wow like <laughs> this was translated uh more than anything like negative obviously do we want to i mean like <laughs> I, I really just have a couple of things like uh when they're she and her friend i think is this uh ingrid uh, when they're getting stoned together and their eyes go swirly, her beauty mark on her nose also becomes swirly. <laughs> Which is just uh, a tremendous bit. Like? <laughs> um, the panel where it's like, she's talking about like me then, me now. And it's like, it's it's about like her shaving her legs, but it's just like a divide. It's like a divided blank panel. panel, and the left yeah. side has like a bunch of like little ticks on it, and then the right side is blank. <laughs> uh, just things like that. Like I mean, and again, like this goes back to like I'm very grateful that we have this foundation in Scott's work to like be able to like see things like that and sort of notice that like she's making use of like the power or the ability that comics have to like showcase things like that in like a very clean way like other than like an Edgar Wright montage of her shaving her legs <laughs> like I can't imagine what that would look like in like a film format the all the like she does a few good like kind of montage segments that are always very entertaining like the uh the whole puberty segment <laughs> is extremely funny uh the part where she does like for her marriage um to Riza where she does the like who he thought he was marrying who I thought I was marrying like all that stuff is like extremely good and funny also Uh, it's good it's funny who can complain real 500 days of summer you know good it's funny (laughs) (laughs) I can't get into it we can't uh, we can't Abigail Breslin Abigail Breslin from Stillwater (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking from Zombieland 2 colon double tap but sure Uh, Chloe Grace Moretz is the sister in Spider-Man right. Summer. I get her and Abigail Breslin mixed up a lot. We'll just remember that Abigail Breslin was the uh, wrongfully convicted daughter in Stillwater. <laughs> oh, what a great film. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, is there anything else here? David, do you, do you have any, any sales information? Here? No, I didn't. Uh, I didn't go looking for it uh, for this one because it was only released as uh first the two like kind of albums and then the one album Mm -hmm. um which those numbers yeah i I don't know who knows i I might have found something interesting but But it's like it's very different from like tracking the the sales on the monthly charts for like the periodical comics that you know that's like it's almost like a whole different market yeah but in terms of like trades and maybe you don't know the answer to this but like would you like would you if you're looking at like the monthly trade sales is it like watchman's like number 11 or whatever and it's just like perpetually number 11 for all time well yeah watchman has to be perpetually number 11 for all time because if it ever stops being perpetually number 11 for all time then right. it gets the rights back so they can't they can't allow that to happen yeah um but right. uh 11 i think would be high but like definitely there's like 
you know, five to 10 books that are like forever in like kind of the top 50. Right. And then there's also weird ones that like, well, we, we've talked about it a little bit that like, like if I pull up this month's trade sales, like Saga number one and Walking Dead number one, some, some like that, that are like not from the eighties, but are still like, you know, well past their, their sort of typical lifespan are still going to be hanging around at like surprisingly high positions because it's the kind of comic that when someone is like, how do I get into comics? Like someone's like, you should read Watch, or, well, yeah, you should read Watchmen, you should read Walking Dead, you should read Saga. I don't think Persepolis really has that same Cache. sort of like, yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's not, it just, it doesn't have that like baby's first comic sort of like, not, not baby's first comic, but you know what I like? It doesn't, yeah. <laughs> Watchmen is, Watchmen is also like a completely crazy suggestion for a first comic, but it is um, also like something where it's like, why are like thirteen year olds reading this? <laughs> like, <laughs> no. This is a but, this is much more of a reckoning with like the Vietnam War than they're ready for. <laughs> <laughs> um, like Persepolis, I don't think Persepolis gets that word of mouth record. It's it's not someone's first comic unless it's like the only comic they will ever read. Right. You know what I mean? It's like it might be like the one comic on someone's shelf, but in most cases, if someone is like, I want to like get started reading comics, it won't be the one that someone's like, Oh, you gotta check out Persepolis. That's like an on-ramp comic. <laughs> right. It's it's like, you know, there's so much of like the culture that goes into that as well. That like when you say I want to get into comics, it's like, well, you need to sort of like jump into the deep end with something that will like get you used to sort of like the collecting habits and the reading habits and like, you know, the the all of the accoutrement that goes along with that. Whereas Persepolis is so much its own thing and so singular, um, like it's, that's that's kind of what's funny about it is that like obviously we're going to be talking about a few of the other works that Satrapy has done, but as you said, she's sort of transitioned mostly into being a filmmaker at this point, uh, and nothing else she did ever had the same sort of like broad recognition um, that Persepolis did. So it's it's just like very singular in that way where it's like this is one of those books that like you simply must read so it has like a different appeal than some of those other ones i think that something that came to mind as you were describing that is that it is and it does appear so singular without being at all kind of deconstructionist of the genre yeah um whereas like if you talk about a watchman like obviously it's highly allegorical but also has all of its deconstruction of like superhero comics as well um i think this is a ridiculous quote to pull but there was a uh (laughs) An encyclopedia of electric guitars I had growing up. And when it talks about Steve Vai, uh, they talk about what an iconoclast he is. And it says, before you can break the rules, you have to know them. Um, (laughs) And I'm no big Steve Vai fan, or maybe I've never even listened to a song of his. But I think for a piece to be this like unique without going against rules of the genre is really unusual. And I mean, you guys would know better than me if it does go against like rules of comic books or graphic novels. But uh, to me, it seemed very kind of formally straight ahead uh, while still being so unique. Yeah. And I think that sort of gets back to like her very unique upbringing that like she is like a formally educated in France artist that also has this like incredibly rich personal and like cultural history behind her. Uh, here's a, a sampler for a random month that I just pulled. May 2017, 
Kingdom right. Come is at number 246 in this uh, trades sales. Hey, my one of my favorite times to go to the dentist. <laughs> Watchmen is at number 52 here. Um, Saga Volume 1, which at this point is five years old, uh, is at number 17. Walking Dead number one, which at this point is like 14 years old or 13 years old, uh, is at number 93. And Persepolis does not rank in this this list. So that gives you a sense of like, obviously there were not zero copies of Persepolis sold, or at least I don't think there were (laughs) probably zero copies of Persepolis sold, but, um, but it is not in the top 612. Yeah, I, I think that I think that does sort of get back to what you were saying, David. Like, this is not a comic I would recommend to someone who told me they wanted to get into comics. But this, I think, more than Watchmen or more than pretty much anything else, this is a comic where, like, if someone was not a comics reader, I would feel comfortable recommending this to them because it is like, it's that combination of like, it, it is. It's hard because you know it's it's certainly not comicsy in the way that most people probably think of comics like it's not it's not very marvelish or dc-ish certainly but it also like like i said like it has that accessibility factor which i think is like so big and like allows you to become immersed in the story in a way that like just would never happen if this was just a written memoir yeah and it's it's like again this is i'm looking at numbers from uh comicron which i think is mostly using like diamond distribution numbers. Are so, they having trouble over the last few months just for brand brand reasons? Oh. <laughs> Are they going through no, a Delta Airlines situation? They've they've got a crucially placed H uh, that <laughs> I think is protecting them. Not unlike uh, organized crime in the UK for all my uh, <laughs> line of duty heads out there. That's an amazing <laughs> poll, but I only know about because of the big fat quiz. um there's a show called line of duty in which they are all trying to find a mysterious uh oh of course yeah named h um i just finished line of duty loved it uh yeah i just finished making one of my freaking toilet bowl more of a pile of duty in your case um i have nothing to say i just wanted to quickly transition out of that before you had a chance to respond uh, but i think <laughs> probably said all we have to say <laughs> about persepolis yeah. which you know itself contains a, a very funny uh fecal matter joke very early yeah. on someone yells poo poo <laughs> yes there's that and also uh there's the dog which defecates yeah. on the bed uh what else what else <laughs> uh, yeah i mean like <laughs> it's, it's interesting because like I, I i feel not to go into inside baseball but like it's interesting that like this was one of our shorter episodes broadly speaking but i do feel like we like drilled down on like some interesting things more well, we spent a lot less time summarizing summarizing <laughs> perhaps yes um sorry to all of you who are hoping for a detailed recap yeah go on wikipedia or whatever uh, or just read the book. It's I again. I pray that you did if you've made it this far. Um, but yes, is there anything, David, that we need to uh, take care of from a business perspective? 
as we, I don't uh, think so. Uh, so. Our next episode. Yes, I was say, what do we want to <laughs> do? We want to have this discussion on air of what our well, next episode is uh, going to be. So I I put the, our next episode. I put the the movie at the end of the miniseries. So I have our next episode as being embroideries. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could definitely do that. And for then we sort of I think we talked about this before, but the chicken with plums episode we will probably cover both the book and the film because the book's quite short right yeah the book is quite short and and it's uh these are both sort of like in the uh persepomatic universe because well we'll talk about it but a chicken with plums is about another relative of hers and embroideries i believe her grandmother is like a large character in oh. it. Well, Are you guys uh, going to cover uh, radioactive? I, this was a point of discussion. Uh, I am pushing for us to cover at the very least radioactive because it is based on a comic book. Uh, but I also want to cover the the dark comedy that she directed with Ryan Reynolds, uh, The Voices. Wait, that, okay. I thought you were going to say The Gang of Jodas. No, Gang of Jodas seems like it's like not quite a real movie. <laughs> It doesn't have Ryan Reynolds in it, let's put it that way. It's not a real movie, like Free Guy. I mean, R.I.P.D. Waiting, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Uh, Red Notice, a movie that is truly not a real movie. <laughs> the, the use of the ellipsis in Waiting as the title, someone was patting themselves on their back big time for that one, I feel like. It's troubling stuff. National Lampoon's Van Wilder. He was in The Crudes and The Crudes A New Age fascinating stuff that's that is <laughs> if you haven't turned it off by now <laughs> you're the one who has the Don't problem worry, none of us. us is going to be in um but eric thank you so much for joining us uh we love you dearly or at least i do i don't know what david thinks about you yeah so so uh, always been a little hard to get <laughs> <laughs> emotionally unavailable uh but thank you so much for joining us do you have anything that you <laughs> would like to plug <laughs> uh no uh i am but a law student <laughs> you don't oh, want to no, thank you spend your plug on the hitman's bodyguard <laughs> or hitman's wife's bodyguard classic oh um no it was it was great to be here i uh i was very excited chris you know however long ago it was that you first mentioned that you guys were thinking of doing this um i've uh yeah big fan enjoyed being here um Um, did you did were you the one who left that comment on the pod beat about asking when we were going to do uh jim davis (laughs) yes oh sorry excuse me john davis not his name (laughs) i spent a lot of time trying to figure out how i could reply to comments (laughs) so i could uh so i could address that Uh, but uh, i of course confused the art with the artist in that case classic i'm sure i'm sure jim davis sees a lot of himself in john arbuckle (laughs) what if jim davis wrote like a persepolis uh i'm now curious about what jim davis has written other than garfield i have to imagine nothing Um, (laughs) that does seem highly likely but because Eric refuses to self-promote i'm just going to read a couple of his recent tweets january 6th he tweeted Love watching period pieces with an inflation calculator open. <laughs> Good bit. This one from January 13th, he says, you could have the best tweets in the world, but if your bio says Bon Vivant, I'm out. 
Um, to which I wanted to reply, but didn't and say, it's very telling about you that this is where you draw the line. Most <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. people are probably a few, few yards back of that line. Uh, also, just because <laughs> it seems vaguely germane to that tweet, uh, I recently had occasion to bring up my observation that uh, BJ Novak seems like a guy who would really like to be identified as a humorist. <laughs> <laughs> it's just something I thought you would find enjoyable. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, David, uh, were, were you looking something up or was I just riffing for no reason? Uh, you were riffing for no reason, but since you brought it up, I will point out that the tagline of the Hitman's bodyguard is get triggered. Uh, <laughs> and... <laughs> And that Hitman's wife's bodyguard canonically does not have the in the title. Wow. That's fascinating. Only only in Australasia. (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard that term before. (laughs) I'm quoting from Wikipedia verbatim. Australasia, which comprises Australia, New Zealand, and some neighboring islands. Usually referred to as Oceania, I believe. But Um, you know what? In in that region, it's actually not called that. It's called the, the Hitman's wife's bodyguard. Oh. <laughs> oh, take us out, won't you? Uh, well, thank you all so much for listening, especially to this part. I We're at about two hours, 15 minutes on the record right now, so I assume you're around minute 57. Um, <laughs> please remember to rate and review us. Give us two stars on Apple Podcasts. And I just discovered Spotify also has a star rating, so oh. give us two stars there as well. Um, <laughs> remember to liberate and immolate us. On, I'm pretty uh, sure you've already done immolate. Oh, uh, probably in the episode of Ex Machina where someone lights themselves on fire. That would make sense. Uh, anyway, at any rate, follow us. Uh, at uh, I almost said the name of my other podcast, Got the Runs, Got the Runs Pod. Pod, on Twitter. You can email us at Got the Runs Pod at gmail.com. Uh, Again, thank you to Eric Stiller for joining us. And Eric, you you know how we sign in our episodes, right? Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> we, of course, <laughs> say you're a listener. Yeah. He probably does not make it to the end, much like me when I listen to our <laughs> podcast. Uh, but we, of course, end with a drawn out to be continued. So okay. thank you for being here. And until next time, to, to be, be continued. One of the biggest legs I think we've ever had. <laughs> Usually how she goes. Bye now.